I'd like to thank the AUA program committee for this opportunity to deliver the take-home messages in female urology and incontinence. I have no relevant financial disclosures. It's a challenging yet exciting time in female urology, and this year's AUA brought fresh data, new technology, and more sophisticated data analyses. Topics of interest this year included pelvic organ prolapse repair and octogenarians, a revision of the overactive bladder guidelines, rechargeable sacral neuromodulation units, vaginal lasers, tibial nerve stimulation, a women's health update for the urologist, nocturia in the elderly, use of a drug Vibegron, autologous sling resurgence, underactive bladder discussions, vaginal mesh, of course, and a new symptom index from LEARN. So AUA and SUFU have an amendment to the overactive bladder guidelines for treatment, specifically second-line treatment. This clinical guideline statement states that clinicians may consider combination therapy with an antimuscarinic and a beta-3 agonist for patients refractory to monotherapy with either, either agent alone. This data came from the Synergy trial, where combined treatment groups had greater improvements in mean numbers of micturition per 24 hours versus placebo, and the effect size appeared to be additive. These similar effects were seen for urgency incontinence episodes, urgency episodes, and nocturia. The SUFU program at the AUA this year was titled Lower Urinary Tract Symptoms, Women Have It Too, Keynote speaker Eric Rovner told the storied, past, the storied past of the term lower urinary tract symptoms and credited Dr. Paul Abrams with not only changing the terminology from prostatism to LUTs in men, but also applying the term LUTs for voiding dysfunction in women as well. Sufu got a new logo this year and also celebrated a 50th anniversary. There was a debate on the management of prolapse in octogenarians. The debaters kicked off by recognizing covergirl May Musk at 70 years old. They also touched on the fact that 80 is the new 60, and there's increasing rates of sexual activity in women after age 80, after, uh, after age 70. The debate was on copoclysis versus restorative procedures for the treatment of prolapse in octogenarians, and while there was no conclusion to the debate, the debaters acknowledged that age alone is not the determining factor when choosing the type of prolapse surgery for your patients. And we do need to ask the well-meaning children of our patients to please leave the room when we ask about sexual activity. Nocturia in the elderly is not a benign disease and not an entirely urologic disease. There are several causative factors that appear to greatly affect quality of life in the elderly and the approach to treatment should be multifactorial with behavioral modifications, pelvic floor muscle therapy, and medication use when needed. Vaginal mesh, where are we in 2019? Really, where are we this week? In April of 2019, the FDA ordered immediate cessation of sales and distribution of remaining mesh products intended for transvaginal repair of anterior prolapse from the US market. It's important to make sure everyone is clear that this does not affect mesh slings or sacrocolpopexy mesh. 
It's also important for all of us to know that claims of autoimmunity, degradation, and carcinogenesis from mesh remain unproven. The autologous pubovaginal sling had a resurgence at this year's AUA with stories on tips and tricks and new applications. The autologous sling can be harvested from the rectus abdomina fascia or the fascia lata of the thigh. And the autologous graft led to the development of the mid-urethral tension-free sling. Autologous fascia can be used for other applications, including correcting complications of gender reassignment surgery, prolapse repairs without mesh, and even treatment in men at, under certain circumstances. This year's AUA had a new course titled Women's Health Update and Gynecologic Considerations for the Urologist. This course presented an evidence-based and clinical review of menopause and hormone replacement therapy, the genitourinary syndrome of menopause, as well as the gynecologic evaluation that is appropriate prior to the treatment of prolapse and other urologic surgeries. There were several late-breaking abstracts. This international phase three double-blind placebo and active controlled study to evaluate the safety and efficacy of Vibegron in patients with symptoms of overactive bladder was presented. Vibegron is a novel, highly selective oral beta-3 agonist that is in development for the treatment of overactive bladder. This study of 1,518 participants showed a significant improvement in daily urgency incontinence episodes, urinary micturition episodes, urgency episodes, and improved volumes voided per micturition. There were few adverse events, and hypertension was similar in both groups. Intradetrusor injection of muscle-derived cells for the treatment of underactive bladder was presented in 20 non-neurogenic underactive bladder participants. Their muscle-derived cells were sent to Cook Myocyte in Pittsburgh for processing, sent back, and then injected one or two times into their bladders. At 18 months, there was encouraging improvement in bladder function with increasing voided volumes and decreasing catheterized volumes. Treatment of urgency incontinence using a novel rechargeable SMN, that is sacral neuromodulation system. The six-month results of the Artisan SMN study was presented. 19 centers in the US and Western Europe enrolled 129 women. At six months, there was 90% of implanted subjects with therapy response. 80% had a greater than 75% reduction in their incontinence episodes, and 34% were dry. Incontinence episodes decreased from 5.6 to 1.3. Another late-breaking abstract, the 12-month feasibility of the implanted nickel-sized and shaped tibial nerve stimulator for the treatment of overactive bladder and urgency incontinence. This is injected above the medial malleolus in an office-based procedure under local anesthetic. Median leaks decreased from 4.2 at baseline to 1.7 at 12 months. A best poster was presented optimizing the nanoparticle-enhanced adhesion of muscle-inspired hydrogels for tissue interfacing. Muscles have strong underwater adhesive properties, and these were applied for nanocomposites to serve as adhesives in tissue interfacing, such as bioglues for tissue adhesin. Another best poster, the use of telemedicine and home monitoring of bladder function for the management of urinary tract infection in the neurogenic bladder population with spinal cord injury. Near-infrared spectroscopy has been reported as with diagnostic capabilities in pediatric urinary tract infection. 
There were seven subjects on telemedicine with home monitoring of bladder near-infrared spectroscopy. They experienced a significant reduction in symptoms and high compliance with their, with their visits. Bladder near-infrared spectroscopy could provide an adjunctive method for early UTI detection. The LEARN group presented a new brief clinical assessment of lower urinary tract symptoms for women and men, the LEARN Symptom Index 10. LEARN has developed the CASIS, the Comprehensive Assessment of Self-Reported Urinary Symptom Questionnaire, which is a 93-item research tool used for phenotyping that was established through qualitative and cognitive interviews. The LEARN CASIS was reduced to the LEARN SI 29, which consists of five scales that could be used as outcome measures. The LEARN SI-29 was now further reduced to a 10-item questionnaire based on investigator ex expertise and consensus meeting. If you like what you heard from the female urology, please join us at SUFU for the 2020 meeting and at the Marriott in Scottsdale at the Camelback Inn. Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity to present the take-home messages from Reconstruction. This was a busy year for Reconstruction. There were over 140 abstracts um, that were presented in nine sessions, as well as at the GORS meeting on Friday. Among these abstracts, the themes of the role of imaging, comparison of surgical techniques, and new technology were prevalent. I've selected a few of these abstracts to highlight for you. First, in the role of imaging and trauma and reconstruction. In trauma, this multi-institutional study by Kehani looked at whether imaging can predict who will require intervention for bleeding after renal trauma. They found that out of more than 300 patients with renal trauma, 14% underwent an intervention for bleeding. Importantly, those with a hematoma rim distance greater than 3.5 centimeters or a 2.5 centimeter laceration were more likely to require intervention for bleeding. Next, in urethral stricture disease, Horigachi and colleagues looked at the value of MRI and the workup of traumatic urethral stricture. Out of 104 patients over eight years, they found that about 60% of the patients had a corpus spongiosum disruption, and 22% had a periurethral fistula on MRI. The length of the spongiofibrosis and the presence of a fistula predicted operative complexity. MRI in this study may be valuable for research and cl clinical use, and further study is needed for the, to assess the economic impact. In the next abstract, Kansian and colleagues tackled the dilemma of whether an abnormal postoperative retrograde urethrogram will predict stricture recurrence. In order to do this, they categorized 172 postoperative retrograde urethrograms into four categories that are pictured on the screen. They found that having frank extravasation or having uh, increased the odds of recurrent strictures. However, contained extravasation or contour irregularity did not. The takeaway, home, takeaway point here is that the findings of a perioperative retrograde urethrogram can help identify which patients are at risk of recurrence. In upper tract reconstruction, Ambani evaluated whether long-term radiologic surveillance is necessary after ureteral reimplant. In this retrospective review of nearly 100 patients, they found that of the patients with normal or equivocal initial studies, none developed late obstruction. The takeaway point from this is that patients who are doing well at their initial postoperative imaging may not benefit from further evaluation if they remain asymptomatic. The next few abstracts will focus on comparison and surgical techniques. 
First, the Neurogenic Bladder Research Group performed a study evaluating the outcomes between cutaneous catheterizable ileocecoscystoplasty versus ileocystoplasty with catheterizable channel. In this multi-institutional retrospective review, they found that out of 130 patients, there was no difference in major complication rate, 90-day readmission, revision of the catheterizable channel, or channel abandonment at a follow-up of about three and a half years. In urethral stricture disease, Watkin and the OPEN collaborators performed a randomized control trial evaluating urethrotomy versus urethroplasty in patients with recurrent bulbar urethral strictures. After randomizing 220 patients to either procedure, they found that while there was no difference in the voiding scores as seen in the image at 24 months, the KM curve shows that the patients who had urethroplasty were more likely to have a durable repair. <clears throat> Next, Murphy and the Turns collaboration retrospectively compared outcomes of perineal urethrostomy versus complex and non-complex anterior urethroplasty. They defined complex urethroplasty as strictures greater than 8 centimeters in length or those having lichen sclerosis. They found no difference in patients' reported outcomes between the groups at two years. However, the stricture recurrent rate was 16% for the perineal urethrostomy. That's double the rate compared to a non-complex urethroplasty, but half the rate of a complex anterior urethroplasty. And rounding out this topic is a study by Benson who pro that provides long-term data on the outcomes of augmented anterior urethroplasty. In this meta-analysis, they found that among all types of augmented urethroplasty, the stricture-free survival rate declined after five years, with a 15-year stricture-free survival rate of only 45%. However, when they excluded patients who had lichen, hypospadias, or the augment was uh, done with a skin graft, the, the stricture-free survival was sustained at nearly 100% through five years, and then declined to a rate of 63% at 15 years. The value of this study is the ability to pull the current literature in order to better counsel patients on their recurrence risk. And to end this session, I'd like to highlight three abstracts uh, regarding emerging technology. First, Grimes and the Turns researchers presented this first-placed abstract at the GRS meeting on Friday. In this study, they developed an innovative staging system for urethral stricture based on length, segment, and ideology of the stricture. The system has been validated for interrater reliability by the Turns group, and they found that stage uh, did correspond with the type and complexity of the surgery performed. This has a great research and clinical potential, and further studies are aimed at correlating whether this stage will correlate with patient outcomes. Next, Carapinos and colleagues evaluated the feasibility of a tissue-engineered buccal graft for urethroplasty. In this study, patients underwent a buccal biopsy three weeks prior to surgery, and then had a three by four centimeter membrane manufactured based on their own cells. This was used in 65 cases, and the majority of these were bulbar strictures that were repaired with a ventral onlay technique with a mean stricture length of about five centimeters. They found that at one year, 81% remained recurrence-free and there was no adverse effect of using this graft. And finally, Elliot evaluated a paclitaxel-coated balloon for urethral stricture to determine safety and efficacy in an open-label multicenter prospective trial. 
For this procedure, the balloon is placed cystoscopically and inflated, as you can see in the figure on the left. While it is inflated, it delivers the paclitaxel to the tissues. It's then deflated and removed. In the figure on the right, you can see the arrows pointing to the paclitaxel on the tissue. This balloon was used in 53 patients, and there were no serious adverse events at three months. There was a significant one-year IPSS improvement, and the success rate, as defined by cystoscopic evidence of no stricture and no repeat treatment within one year, was 70%. In summary, several of the abstracts in trauma and reconstruction focused on the role of imaging, comparison of surgical techniques, and new technology. Thanks to all the researchers for their presentations, and I appreciate the opportunity to present. Thank you.